you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 25. In just a moment, we're going to sing, uh, not sing, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. I'll remind you that I'm on a calendar to conclude Acts by the end of May. So the last Sunday in May, we'll finish the last verses in Acts. It might seem like a tall task. Uh, compared to what you've seen me do in the past, but I'm going to try to make it happen. There's a t-shirt I wear pretty often. I think it's a Comfort Colors brand. It's about seven or eight years old, which means it's really soft. It's well broken in. And it's a shirt from a youth group summer conference down in Florida, on the front of the shirt, there's the name of the conference and the year and I think probably a palm tree. And then on the back, there's this sentence. I think it was the summary statement of the conference that year. Centered across the back of this shirt between the shoulder blades is the sentence, God is at work. Even when it feels like he's not. This t-shirt came to my mind this past week as I was studying this text. That God is at work even when it feels like he's not. I think there's a need for us to be reminded of those words over and over again. A few years ago, Molly was at the Corinth City Park, and she was wearing my shirt, you know, as wives sometimes do. They like the big, baggy, soft shirts. And she was wearing my T-shirt, and another mom walked up to her, and she said, I read the back of your shirt, and I really needed to be reminded of that today. That God is at work, even when it feels like he's not. Think of the Apostle Paul. He's in Jerusalem. He's imprisoned in the Roman barracks. But what happens? The Lord comes and visits him, stood by him, and said, just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, you're going to do the same in Rome. Paul, you're not going to die here. I'm sending you to Rome. And then things start to happen quite quickly. The next day, a conspiracy is reported. Paul is then evacuated from Jerusalem. He's surrounded by 140 Roman soldiers, and under the cover of darkness, they take him out of the city and all the way 60 miles away to see the governor of the province. And what would human wisdom tell us? Well... The Lord said he would send Paul to Rome. He's innocent of these charges. So surely the Roman governor will be just and exonerate Paul and set him free. And straight away he can get on a ship there in Caesarea. It's a port city. He can get on a ship and sail to Rome and begin to testify about Christ and see men and women converted and the kingdom of God Continue its advance. 
That's how we would expect this to go. But what happens? We saw this last week. He's held there in Caesarea for two years. Now, he's not in a hole in the ground. He's given a lot of freedom, but he's not free to go. All because the corrupt governor is hoping to get a bribe. He's hoping that Paul would offer money to buy his freedom. And thinking about this, I know where at least my mind can go. Lord, things were going so well. There was movement and there was forward progress, but now it seems like everything has stalled out. Valuable years are lost. Think of the things that you could have done through Paul in those two years. Right? We know it's a big deal when the star athlete on our team goes down, whether they're benched or whether they're injured. We know how big of a deal that is when they're unable to help their teammates. Well, Paul apart from Christ, is the greatest evangelist, the greatest church planner. And just imagine what could have happened in those two years, but instead he's, he's grounded in Caesarea, not allowed to leave, forced to have repeated conversations with a politician who's only trying to extort money from him. We see a circumstance like that, and we're tempted to ask, Lord, what are you doing? Seems like you were working before. The whole exposing the plot, getting Paul out of harm's way, placing him before a judge who seems interested in talking about the things of God. Everything was falling into place. But now, nothing. For these two years, nothing. But we remember the t-shirt. That God is at work even when it feels like he's not. I guarantee that all of you have at least one circumstance in your life where you could ask the same question. At least one circumstance that could make you say, Lord, it doesn't seem like anything is happening here. Are you working? What is it for you that seems stalled out. Whether it's a job or a career, or maybe the process of adoption, wanting to bring a child into your home. Maybe it's someone you dearly love, you've been praying for, for so long, and it just doesn't seem like much is happening. Dear Christian, God is at work even when it feels like he's not. And we're going to see that in our text today. But first, let's pray. Father God, I do pray that you would give your people eyes to see, eyes to behold the wondrous things that are in your word. Father, speak to us this morning through your spirit that we might be built up and edified as your church 
the body of Christ. We ask this in our Lord's name. Amen. Acts 25, read verses 1 through 12. Now after, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking for a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is anything to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, we're going to look at this ongoing legal saga that Paul finds himself entangled in. We're told just a couple verses back at the very end of chapter 24 that Governor Felix was uh, succeeded by a man named Portius Festus. And this is where chapter 25 picks up with another politician and another frustrating, biased trial. History tells us that Felix, the governor from chapter 24, is replaced because he's done a poor job governing this Roman province. What you observe in his dealings with Paul is probably pretty representative of how he operated. And so he's called back to Rome, and Portius Festus is sent to take his place and to set everything to rights. 
Well, he attempts to do this immediately. Just three days after arriving to town, Festus goes to Jerusalem. I'm sure his office had received lots of complaints and letters about Paul, this Roman citizen who is being held. And Festus also has, of course, the letter that was originally sent by the Roman tribune, which basically says Paul is charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. He knows this, but he's got to find a way to keep the population happy. So Festus is in Jerusalem. He speaks with the chief priests and the elders and the Jews, and they are up to the same old tricks. I mean, we've already seen this. It's been two years, and there's been no repentance. There's been no growth. There's been no moderating. What do they want? Festus. Don't worry about this burden. Send Paul to us. Bring him here to Jerusalem. We will take care of it, and you can forget about this whole problem. All the while, Luke tells us that they're planning to kill him on the way. Right? If if Festus grants this, There would be hit squads planted all along the road to ensure that Paul never made it. Think of how easy it would have been for Festus to say, sure, I'll send a horse. We can get Paul up here. This whole drawn-out controversy, we we can put it to bed. It would have been so easy for Festus to do that. It probably would have been the best political move he could have made. Three days on the job, and instantly you have the support of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. But Festus doesn't do it. Instead, he says, we're going to leave Paul in Caesarea. And if you'd like to bring a case against him, you can go there with me. Now, why does he say that? Well, we'll talk about this more in a moment. There's only one reason. It's that God is working, even when it seems like he's not. We then get to the second half of this passage. Eight to ten days have passed. Everyone is back in Caesarea. Governor Festus is there. The Jews are there. And, of course, Paul is there. And the Jews, again, they're doing the same thing that they've been doing. They're bringing serious charges against Paul. Charges that they in no way could prove. They're saying ridiculous, slanderous things, and they have zero evidence. But they don't care. Like like a, a dog, they have latched on to Paul's supposed guilt. And he must be condemned, and they aren't letting this thing go. And it tells us something of the power of spiritual blindness that they couldn't see. They they wouldn't see. They, They never stopped and thought, hey, maybe we're the bad ones in this situation. And they just keep spewing the same 
stuff. And yet I'm convinced that Paul never got used to their words. These brothers of his, his accusers, he wanted them to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wanted them to know peace with God. He wanted them to rest upon the sufficiency of Christ and to rejoice that God has answered his promises. To rejoice that they could commune with the Spirit of God. But here they are again fabricating every reason why their brother should be condemned. And I have no doubt that if they'd repented, if they'd sought forgiveness, Paul would have granted it immediately. He would have embraced them with tears. He would have offered them Christ. He would have baptized them right there in Caesarea. But in their pride, they would not believe. And then we see a change in Festus, don't we? I mean, he, he seemed very, very firm and just, just, this is how it's going to be. Paul is going to be in Caesarea. Bring your charge there. But now there's this change, which is worrisome for Paul. In verse 9, we're told, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, asked Paul a question. You know, Festus has to make a judgment. He can't do like Felix did and just kick the can down the road. Paul is not going to admit guilt. The Jews aren't going to back down. Something has to happen. So what does he do? Well, instead of making a judgment, he deflects. And he asks Paul the question, Paul, would you like to continue this trial in Jerusalem? And again, it would have been so easy for Festus to just send him, to bind him and send him to Jerusalem. But it doesn't happen. He, he, I, I guess he really thinks that Paul's just going to say, sure. Or that's, I don't know if he really thinks that, but it's his hope that Paul is just going to agree. Like, of course I'll go to Jerusalem. It, it, it'd be like a lamb saying, of course I'll walk straight into the slaughterhouse. What could happen? So Festus asks this question seeing what Paul will say. And then we get the answer in verse 10. Paul says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything of which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing of their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. So Festus asks this question, Paul, what do you think about finishing all this up in Jerusalem? Paul says, no, thank you. I'm right where I need to be. I've committed no crime, as you know. But since this seems to be devolving, I invoke my right as a citizen and appeal to the highest court in, a, in the land 
to Caesar himself. And and if Caesar finds me guilty and deserving of death, then so be it. I'm not trying to escape death. I'm only seeking justice. Paul is sensing a weakening in Festus' resolve. This growing desire in his heart to do the Jews a favor. He is only moments away from pulling a Pontius Pilate. We remember what Pilate did. His actions are forever remembered in the Apostles' Creed. The Lord Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Three separate times, Pilate questions Jesus and then goes outside and says to the crowd, I find no guilt in him. And yet, after sufficient pressure, he gives in to the demands of the crowd because he wants to appease them more than he wants to do what is right. And that's what Festus is getting dangerously close to. Delivering over a man he knows to be innocent in order to pacify the crowd. But it doesn't happen. Governor Festus then goes off and discusses Paul's words with the council and then comes back and says, all right, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And again, I want to ask you, Trinity, why? Why does he do this? Why? Doesn't he succumb to the desires of the crowd and become like Pilate? Because God is at work, even when it feels like he's not. And I hope you realize how relevant this this is. We're, We're talking about a legal squabble in the first century, but I think so many of us can relate to this. One of... God's people finds himself in the middle of a lengthy, ugly, exhausting, frustrating legal battle. And God works through it. We see God use poor governing and biased judgments and delay of justice and false accusations. He even uses this final abdication of Festus where instead of rendering a judgment, he he says, Paul... What would you like to do? He uses all of it to accomplish his purpose, which is sending Paul to Rome to testify of Christ. You know, it brings to my mind the story of Joseph, found in the latter portion of the book of Genesis. Joseph is thrown down into a pit and left for dead. He's then pulled out, up out of the pit and sold to traitors as a slave. He then gets to Egypt and is falsely accused of trying to seduce his master's wife. And he's thrown in jail 
and forgotten about for years. And yet in all those griefs, God was working. He used all the evil committed against Joseph to accomplish his purposes. And we have that wonderful line at the end of Genesis where Joseph reassures his brothers and says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. And all that happened to Joseph to ensure that God's people would survive seven years when there was no food in the land. God was at work in the hardships of Joseph. And God was at work in this arduous legal battle that Paul finds himself in. You know, a couple of times I emphasized how easy it might have been for Festus to just end this whole ordeal with a wave of his finger. He could have handed Paul over to the wolves. And at the moment when it seems like he might be wavering the most, he puts the decision in Paul's hands. And again, I want to ask why. John Calvin, in his commentary on Acts, made these statements. He said, God restrained Festus's mind so that the ruler firmly denied something that he would later, uh, that he was later prepared to grant. You've got these two instances. The first instance, verse four, where Festus is strong and he says, no, Paul will be tried in Caesarea. And then Second instance where Festus is weak in verse 9, wanting to do the Jews a favor. And, and Calvin says of that first instance where he is strong, he says the Lord held Festus's mind in check by the secret bridle of his providence. You know what a bridle is? A bridle is that headgear that's used to control a horse. Through the bridle you can make... Uh, the rider is able to make the horse stop or turn right or turn left. And Calvin reminds us that there was a bridle on the mind of the governor, and that bridle was the providence of God, working all things according to his will to accomplish his purposes for his own glory. And then in the second instance, when Festus is about to act like Pilate. Calvin says, when God granted Festus freedom of the will, he tied his hands so that he could not do what he wanted. God allowed Festus to do what he desired to do, but he couldn't because his hands were tied. He'd slipped up allowed Paul to appeal to a higher court. And then Calvin ends with these words. He says, quote, Let this confidence sustain us in danger and also stir us up to call on God and let this make our minds quiet and calm that when the Lord reached out and destroyed such a strong conspiracy, He demonstrated for all time his power in defending Paul. Brothers and sisters, 
and fathers and mothers. I don't know what the specific circumstance is for you this morning. That arduous, frustrating process that feels like it's just stalled and not going anywhere. And I know there's the temptation to where it seems like, well, God has just fallen asleep. He's not doing anything. Whatever it is, I promise you that God is at work. You remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8? He wrote Romans prior to this event with Festus. And surely these words would have been in his mind. He, he said, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I know that from a human point of view, things might look hopeless or frustrating or stalled or just plain wrong. But our God is powerful and will work all things together for good for those who love him. One final point, and then we're done. Paul isn't going to get on the boat just yet. We'll see a conversation he has with King Agrippa next week. But from this point on, from now, from verse 12 to the end of Acts, the hopes of his accusers are dashed. I know you, you may be fatigued with them accusing Paul and Paul defending himself. I mean, this has been going on, I mean, for several chapters now. It's over. And I'm sure the Jews screamed and howled and protested when Festus said, okay, go to Caesar. But their protest did nothing. They've lost They have to return to Jerusalem without their scalp. It's over. This theme that we've seen from the earliest in Acts of of Jewish unbelief and hostility and opposition to Christ, it's over. They will not bother Paul again. They will not stand and accuse him again. And in this we have an illustration of the Christian hope. Both in the here and now and in the by and by. In the here and now, for those who love God, the voice of the accuser means nothing. Because you have fled to Christ, because you have hidden yourself in him because he has covered you in his perfect righteousness. The accusations of the enemy, the enemy of your soul, they cannot stick. That is true today. By the power and grace of God, you have been made the righteousness of God. Your enemies have been defeated. And their howls and protest will not avail them. 
with childlike faith, you can say, the tide of time shall never his covenant remove. His name shall stand forever. And that name to us is love. Christian, you are safe from your accuser in the here and now. But there's also a hope for the by and by. There's also a hope for the one day, someday, when all things will be made right, when all things will be made new, when heaven will come to earth and God will dwell with his people and there will be no need for sun or moon or stars for the Lord will be our light. And when that day comes, the accuser will be finally and ultimately shed forever. Satan and sin and death will be at long last destroyed, never to trouble the children of God ever again. And that day is coming. And that day is the final hope of the Christian. It's what makes the Christian say, come, Lord, quickly. I'd like to end by reading a couple verses Paul wrote. These are from 1 Timothy 4, 17 and 18. And I imagine he had this moment in his mind. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed And all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may our trust be built and edified and strengthened. May we be given eyes to see that even in the midst of doldrums or grief or trial, you are at work. There is Nothing that is meaningless in this life. You use all our circumstances to bring about the good of your people and your divine purposes and your great glory. Father, grow our trust. May may Paul's words become our words. Would you strengthen us that we might also share these words of grace with our neighbor. We remember that you have rescued us from the lion's mouth. You have delivered us from death to life through Christ. 
And at last, you will one day bring us home as well, safely into your heavenly kingdom. Father, help us to be those who trust. And as those who remember that you are at work, even when it feels like you're not. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.